invite you to take your Bibles. Turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We're going to be in Isaiah 43 as we continue our series through Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. This morning we come to Isaiah 43. I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 7. So I ask if you'll please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. Isaiah 43, 1 to 7. This is God's holy word for us, His people. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Because... For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is God's mighty and holy, inspired word for us as people. Father, we pray that you would bless this reading of your word, and now especially the preaching of your word, that you would send your Holy Spirit from heaven to do what only he can do, to open eyes, to open ears, to open hearts, to open my mouth, to speak your word. And I pray that you would indeed be heard today, and that you would write your eternal truths upon our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, I began the sermon by talking about the two most used words in our world today. The two ideas that our culture seems to be most preoccupied with. Do you remember what they were? It's quiz time. Uh Safety. Justice. That's good. Someone either listened or watched the tape afterwards because these are being recorded. That's right. Safety and justice. We want everything to be as safe and as fair as possible. Our world doesn't look to the Lord, doesn't look to the kingdom, doesn't look to Christ to bring about this perfect world where there's no risk and no danger and everyone's perfectly safe and everyone always does what is right and fair and it's a world of perfect justice and no sin. This new heavens and new earth that the Bible promises. Our culture doesn't look to the Lord to bring about this world, to bring about the new heavens and new earth? No. Our world looks to science and to social justice to accomplish these goals. And remember I said, this is a theological position. It's a doctrine. And that's why you might get blasted on social media, for example, for not blindly agreeing with secular faith statements like believe science. 
trust the experts, and a plethora of other virtue-signaling mantras from across the political and social spectrum. You see, both conservatives and liberals serve a pantheon of made-in-America false gods. It's not unique to one side or the other. And why are things in the condition that they are in our country? Many people are asking these questions. What's going on? What's happening? And the answer at bottom is theological. Because you see, tensions run high when false gods go to war for the soul of a society. And one of the implications of last week's sermon is that we as Christians must transcend the whole left-right debate, divide, and struggle. We've got to get above it. Don't take a side in that fight. Transcend it. We must take a kingdom mindset and lift our eyes to the true God who delights to destroy both conservative and liberal idols alike. And both sides surely have them. So that's last week. These two big words, these two big things that are most talked about in our society, are safety and justice. And we primarily looked at justice. Now this week I want you to think about the two most asked questions in our world today. What are the two big issues that seem to dominate the consciousness, even down to a personal level, of our world? Now, there's probably multiple correct answers here, but here's my suggestion. The two most asked questions this generation is facing are, Who am I? And do I matter? Who am I? And do I matter? These are the fundamental questions of identity, who am I, and purpose. Do I matter? And our culture is consumed with the questions of identity. We hear about identity politics and how you self-identify. Identity is all over the place now. And who gets to decide your identity? And how do you know? And how do you determine your identity? Who am I? We hear slogans like, live your life. Love yourself. Be true to you. And we're told that you get to be the ultimate judge of who you are. And how dare anybody question how deeply you feel. Who you feel yourself to be is the ultimate judge of who you are. Who you feel yourself to be is the most important thing about you. It's even more powerful than any other factor that exists in determining who you are. That's what we're told. And in the midst of this quest to find our identity, we are also desperate to know what our purpose is. Do I matter? Am I significant? Do I have a purpose? Is there any ultimate meaning for me and my life? Now, of course, on some level, these are questions that human beings in general have always been asking. They're not brand new questions that our generation faces. People have been asking these things since creation. But our generation right now, our culture seems especially anxious about them. And this is why people are so depressed. There's depression, there's anxiety, there's all these mental health issues. There's drug addictions and the opioid crisis and overdoses and things. Maybe these things are at an all-time high for us. But people, we have more than we've ever had. More access to more stuff and more information, more entertainment than ever, and yet we're more depressed than ever. And part of it comes down to, in the midst of all these great blessings and gifts and things we have, we don't know who we are and we don't know what we mean. And so this is part of why we take good things and we abuse ourselves and we abuse substances and entertainment and things, and we abuse each other. 
Because we're all struggling, screaming, scratching, clawing, trying to find some truth about me and about my life. Now, as Christians, stepping into this world or just finding ourselves in the midst of it, we're not immune to this stuff. Because this is happening where we live. This is happening in our own lives, maybe in our own families. As Christians, where should we turn to answer these questions for ourselves and for our world? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, where is your identity and purpose to be found? Who or what ultimately gets to decide our identity and our purpose? And as we as the forks, as a church, as the body of Christ in America, as we go out into the world as a church and as followers of Jesus, what message of hope do we have? What good news can we bring to unbelievers and struggling believers who are in the grip of these complex and troubling issues? Isaiah 40 to 55 is all about God answering these questions about himself. Who God answers these questions. Who am I as God? And what's my purpose? Now he has no doubts about who he is and what his purpose is. We do. We don't know him like we should. And so God answers these questions about himself. In Isaiah 40 to 55. He tells us who he is. And he tells us what his purpose is. And as we learn who he is. And what his purpose is. And our relation to him. And our relationship with him. All of a sudden there's light. To illumine our darkness. And tell us who we are. And what our purpose is. And we come to Isaiah 43. And God tells us. That the ultimate purpose behind absolutely everything he does. He tells us what it is. And it's in light of that great purpose. That we discover these answers to our questions. And God's ultimate purpose. In everything he does. Is to glorify himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, their purpose is to glorify God as the creator of all things and the redeemer of his chosen people. God is creator and redeemer, and his purpose is to glorify himself as creator and as redeemer. At the beginning of this series, you'll remember I said that we will never truly know ourselves until we see ourselves in relation to who God is. And in these chapters in Isaiah, God is on a mission to reveal His glory to the world and to His people so that we might turn as His people from our idolatry. This morning, I've taken Isaiah 43. The whole, remember, I'm preaching whole chapters. I've taken the content, the material in Isaiah 43, and I've rearranged it. And you can look at your handout and see how I've rearranged all the verses. I've rearranged it under four headings into, in the order of the grand narrative of Scripture. So I've rearranged the material, and I've put it in order as four points. And those four points are in the order of the grand narrative of Scripture. From creation and the fall, points one and two, to redemption in Christ and the final consummation, points three and four. And as we look at each of these points, and we behold God's pursuit of His own glory in all things, we will see how God's glory defines our identity and determines our significance. So let's start with the first one, creation. Now, right away, we see the twin themes of this whole series in verse 1. Isaiah 43, 1. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, 
Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I've created you. I've redeemed you. And that's what this whole section of Scripture is about. Yahweh God, the God of Israel, is the creator and the redeemer. Verses 6 and 7. He says, I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. He's talking, and remember, Israel's in exile in the context of who's being addressed here. Israel's in exile. Babylon and Persia. And he's saying a promise. I will say to the north, those nations where you've been exiled, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Verse 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Whom I created for my glory. You were created for His glory. That's the purpose in everything He does, including creation. Why did God create? And why did He make human beings to live upon the earth? Answer, you exist to bring Him glory with your life. You exist to bring Him glory with your life. And then verse 21. He says, The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. You exist to bring Him glory with your life, and you exist for worship. You were made for Him for His glory, for His praise, and for His worship. You are God's creature, made in His image. Now, this whole series, we're talking about God triumphing as Creator over all the false gods, all the idols. And in Hebrew, when we're called in Genesis chapter 1, the image of God... That's the same word that's used for the images of the false gods. It's the same word for idol. And is it any wonder, therefore, that the, our favorite idol as fallen creatures is the one in the mirror? That image. That's the one that we love more than anything. You are made as God's creature, but you're made in his image. To be an image of Him, a picture of Him in the world. You are to be His monument. You imagine the images of the gods of Greece with Zeus seated upon His throne. An image of a god that you worship. That's a monument to the glory of Zeus. But you are a living image as God's creature. You are made to be a monument of His glory, not yours. As Psalm 8, 5 says, David speaking to God, Yet you have made human beings a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned Him with glory and honor. We have been crowned with glory and honor. We are the crown and glory of creation as human beings. Monuments of His glory meant to display and image forth and reflect and show His glory in creation. And therefore, this defines our identity. This determines our significance. Who are you? You are the crown and glory of creation, an image of God, made to sing His praise, the praise of the Creator, not the praise of the image. We're to be a reflection of His glory. The world is to see God through His image. We are monuments of His glory. Made for Him, made to serve Him, made to honor Him, made to worship Him. And if this is what we were made for, then sin must ultimately be defined in terms of a failure 
to glorify God. And this is point two about the fall. If we were made to glorify Him, then sin is ultimately about not doing that. Failing to do that. Glorifying something else, some other image, some other God. Serving some other God. Everything is theological at the end of the day. Everything's not ultimately political. Everything's not ultimately social and cultural and philosophical. Underneath all that is what God is being served. When things happen at these higher levels, culture, politics, society, when things happen at these higher levels, ask Okay, what's happening in society? Why do they make that policy? Why is that movement started? Why are they protesting that? Why is this happening? Why would we vote that way? Why would we do this? Why don't we elect him? All this stuff up here, look through it and say, what God are we serving when we do that? Who's being glorified? Who's being honored and served at the bottom? Think about it in theological terms, think about it as Christians. Sin is ultimately about failing to glorify God. And Paul comes about as close as anybody could to saying exactly that in the book of Romans. What is sin in Romans 3.23? All have sinned and fall short of the what? The glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short. Sin is a falling short of the glory of God. Sin is a failure to glorify God. Now in Isaiah 43, look at verses 8 and 9. Let's see how Isaiah tells us these things. Isaiah 43, 8 and 9. He says, bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together, the peoples assemble. Who, excuse me, who among them can declare this and show us the former things? This is the same topic we talked about a couple sermons ago, where God says this oral exam of the false gods. If you're a real God, you've got to be able to tell us about the past and about the future. Prove that you're God's by showing that you have the knowledge of God. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. What's going on here? The deaf and blind pagan nations have turned away from the true God to serve their own gods. They are witnesses for their gods, as it says in verse 9. Let them bring their witnesses, witnesses for their gods, to prove them right, to prove that they are gods. They're witnesses for their gods. They're, these are the believers, the prophets, the evangelists of the false gods. We have a great commission as followers of the Lord. False gods have great commissions too. And these are the witnesses for these false gods who witness in behalf of their idols. And you can see the contrast between their witnesses in verse 9 with the first line of verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. So we've got a battle of witnesses. This is a trial where the different witnesses are testifying in behalf of their own gods the sin of the nations is their idolatry. They glorify and worship false gods. They're witnessing for the wrong God. They're not being God's witnesses of His glory. They're witnessing for their false gods. And this is the bottom line definition of sin. Verses 22 to 24. He says, You did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. That's important. God gave Israel all these regulations for how to worship Him through the sacrificial system. And He says here, look, that's not a burden. That's a gift. You get to worship me in the way that I want to be worshipped. 
I've told you exactly how to worship me. How is that a burden to you? How is pleasing me in worship a burden? How have I wearied you? Please tell me. God is cross-examining his own people, not just the pagans, his own people. He says, you have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. In other words, Israel's no better off than the pagans because they fall short of God's glory too. They too have forsaken the true God. And notice that their sin is defined here in terms of a failure of worship. It's a failure to do what they were created to do, to worship God. And this gets repeated again in Romans 1. Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and they served the creature rather than the Creator. That's where we've all gone wrong. We were made to serve and worship and give thanks to the Creator, and we've all turned to serve creatures, especially this one. We do what is right in our own eyes, individually, socially, and as a civilization. It's a failure to worship. That's what sin is. Last, last thing under this second point, verses 27 and 28. God says, Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. The great falling short of the glory of God began all the way back at the beginning with the fall of Adam. Your first father sinned. Adam was the first to defect, to fall away at the tree. To fall short of the glory of God. And because of his transgression, he has brought sin and misery, condemnation and death upon the whole world. He defected from God in the beginning. He's the first one who did not honor and worship the creator rather than the creature. He picked fruit, literally, over God. Who are you? You are the crown and glory of God's creation. Made in His image to be a monument of His glory. What is your purpose? You exist to be His witness in the world. To worship and serve your Creator. And to fill the earth with the knowledge of His glory as the waters cover the sea. What has gone wrong with us and with our world? We have fallen away from God. Beginning with Adam, we have defaced the monuments of his glory. There's a whole lot going on right about defacing statues, tearing down statues. That started in the garden. Pulling down the images of God and putting up our own. We're very good at this. We have turned against God to serve idols. We have lost our identity, therefore. We've lost our sense of meaning. We rejected it because we find our meaning and our identity in the glory and purpose of God. And we've rejected that, so we've lost who we are. 
And we seek to fill that void we've created for ourselves with every false god we can find and with everything this world has to offer. This is the world that is lost and in need of a Savior. And that brings us to point three. Redemption. If we have fallen from God's glory... If that is what it means to be lost, then salvation must consist in being restored to that glory from which we fell. Sin is defined in terms of falling short of God's glory, and so redemption, the recovery of Adam's fallen race, is about picking us up from where we fell and putting us back where we were made to be, restoring us to the glory of God. The glory of God defines everything He does. Creation, fall, and now redemption. Being restored to the glory of God. Every stage, and this, this point needs a sermon on its own, or maybe a series. But we'll just summarize it. Every stage and every aspect of our salvation, of your salvation, from first to last, is all for the glory of God. And I'm just going to highlight these and run through them quickly. We see all five stages of salvation in Isaiah 43. Again, these are all in different places. I've just rearranged them into this order. Election unto salvation, the atonement, effectual calling, justification, and preservation to the end. All these are mentioned in different places. And let me just highlight how each of them is about God's glory. Election unto salvation. This is verse 10. God says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. There's election. That you may know and believe me and understand that I am. Now, I know it says I am he, but in Hebrew it's just I am. Like Exodus 3.14, I am. That you may know and believe me and understand that I am before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, verse 11, besides me there is no Savior. I declared, I saved, I proclaimed. You hear it's all about God. I have chosen you to bear witness to this reality. In fact, it says, I have chosen you so that you might know me. And it says, I've chosen you so that you will believe. You've been chosen for faith, not by faith. Election is for faith. Chosen in order that you might become a believer. Justification is by faith. You believe, God justifies you. Election isn't by faith. I believe and therefore God chooses me. No, 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 no. I have chosen you so that you might believe and might come to know me. And might understand who I am. Election's all about knowing Him and becoming His witness. Number two, the atonement. Verses three and four. Some of the most staggering verses in, in Isaiah, verses three and four. He says, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. How does He save? Look what it says. I give Egypt as your ransom. There's the Exodus, right? I give Egypt as your ransom. Cush and Seba, two countries, two nations farther south from Egypt. I give them in exchange for you. I pour out judgment on them to redeem you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men, I give other people in exchange in return for you, I give other peoples in exchange for your life. And this is what the Exodus was. God loved Moses more than he loved Pharaoh. 
I mean, right? He, he felt a little better about Moses than Pharaoh. You can read the story. I mean, he certainly loved the, the Hebrews more than he loved the people he put the ten plagues on. Now, he sent them a witness to tell them, let my people go and all that. But in the end, he hardens Pharaoh's heart. Egypt will not let them go. So he has to crush them under his judgment to get his people out. He gives up Egypt in exchange for his chosen people. Now, this plays itself out ultimately on the cross where he gives his own son in place of, uh, of us. To save us. Jesus is the ransom. He's the one who's given over. He's the one that's exchanged. Christ in our place on the cross. Why? So that we could come back to God. So that we could belong to Him. He chose us to know Him and believe Him and belong to Him. To recover us. And so Christ goes to the cross to accomplish that recovery. That restoration back to the glory of God. Third, effectual calling. The second half of verse 1. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. That's what effectual calling is. I'm, I said this way back in, in, the, in the first series I did last year, when we looked at Romans 8. And I said that we're called according to His purpose. And that called is the same thing as saying, Oh, I, that's my desk. I called it. Shotgun. I called it. It's mine. That's what election is. That sinner, mine. That one, mine. Satan, sorry. Mine. Death, nope, that one's mine. Grave, too late, called it. That's what effectual calling is. I've redeemed you, I've called you by name. Mine. No one else's. Mine. He calls us. Verse 5. Fear not. I am with you. I read these verses earlier. I am with you. I will bring you back to me. All those sinners who had been scattered and exiled like the prodigal son in the far country eating the husks with the swine. He knows your name. He sees you at that trough. And one day he says, Mine. And he says your name. And he said, Time to come to me. And you come. And he gathers his people one at a time. He's gathering them in Mexico. He's gathering them here in Pennsylvania. He's gathering them through preachers and missionaries and evangelists and radio ministries and you name it. His voice is being heard. His people's ears are coming open. And He is gathering His sons and daughters from afar. His people from the ends of the earth. Everyone called by my name whom I created for my glory. God's gospel is going out. His people are being gathered and they're coming to the Lord of glory. Justification, number four. Verse 24. Verse 24 is a judgment verse. It ends with, But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. We just... Keep heaping sin upon God. Every time we disobey, every time we glorify something else, every time we worship the false God, we just keep heaping sin onto Him. He says, you've wearied me with your sins. You're burdening me with all your sins. What does He do with your sins? He takes them to a cross. And then He buries them in a tomb. And then He rises and He leaves them there. And you go free. That's what your Savior does. And why does He do it? Why does He justify you from your sin? Verse 25. I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. So that He gets the glory of being your perfect Savior. And I will not remember your sins. 
You just burdened him with all these sins and he's not going to remember them because he buried them in, in the tomb he left behind to be your living Savior. Astonishing. We are forgiven and justified right with him. We just heap our sin on him and he just bears it on the cross and bleeds to wash every stain away. And we go clean and free. Why? For my own sake. So that he gets the glory. Justification's about the glory of God. Last one under this point. Preservation. Verse 2. Glorious promise in verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. God will keep you through every trial, every loss, every cross, every burden, every tribulation, walking through fire, going through... He will bring you through all that rough terrain and He will bring you home to the promised inheritance at the end. He will preserve you. Why? Verse 3, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. From one end of eternity to the other, God has passionately pursued His own glory. And as I said last week, this is the most loving thing He could possibly do for you because He glorifies Himself most highly when He saves you most perfectly. He wants all the glory for being a perfect Savior. And the only way to get that is to save you perfectly. So the harder he pursues that glory, the more he's loving you. And that's why God's passion for his glory is not some selfish ambition that distracts him from serving and loving others. No. For God, pursuing the glory of being your savior is the most loving thing he can do for you. The more passionately God pursues his own eternal glory as your perfect savior, the more passionately he loves you. Who are you, Christian? If you belong to Jesus Christ, if you believe the gospel, if you worship and serve the one true God, if you are a citizen of heaven and an heir of the eternal kingdom and glory of God, that's your identity. First and foremost. This is an eternal identity that transcends, that overrides and overrules every other identity this world tells you to adopt. This is who you are. Before your, your race or your color or your ethnicity or your background or your ancestry or what your ancestors did or your social status or your income level or your tax bracket or your car or your house or your career or your party affiliation or your regrets and failures or your accomplishments and your accolades or your family. Everything that is, most of which, most of that stuff's fine, but everything that the world tells you to adopt as who you truly deeply are to get your meaning and significance from, all of those have to be subordinate to being a child of God. And that's a reality that transcends every other divide, every other wall of division this world insists on us putting up between each other. It transcends our suspicions and our hatred and our accusations of one another over things that happen in public, in the public sphere, the public square. You must always see yourself, know yourself, understand yourself in light of the cross. And at the foot of the cross, everybody's equal. Everyone's on equal ground, equally broken, equally in need of a Savior. Equally redeemed by the blood of the Savior. And that is the apex of the purpose of God, to restore you to His glory. His glory, you are restored to His glory at the foot of a cross. What is your purpose? It's to live in that 
reality. Do you have significance? Do you matter? Does your life have any meaning? If God gave His Son for you, and if Jesus shed His blood and gave His life for you, then your life has eternal value and incalculable significance. It isn't possible for you to matter more than you do to God. As as he says in the text, he says, Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give others in exchange for you. You are precious to him. Not because you're so wonderful in and of yourself, but because he has declared his love for you. He has found unlovely sinners like us and made us lovely by his love. Our love goes the other way. We see something pretty or attractive or something we like and we think, ooh, I want that. Ooh, this is nice. I love that. God's love goes the other way. He looks at all the unloveliness of our sin and he says, I will love that. And he makes us lovely. You can't possibly matter more than that. God has chosen, redeemed, called, justified, and preserved for himself a special people. And you are one of those people called by his name as the eternal monument of his glory, the trophies of his grace. Creation is all about the glory of God. The fall is all about falling away from and falling short of the glory of God. And redemption is all about Christ saving us from our fall, away from glory, our fall into sin, by restoring us into the monuments of grace to the glory of God. And now we live in this world as Christians as the redeemed people of God who worship and serve our Creator and Redeemer and who have been commissioned to be His witnesses. Verse 10. His witnesses in this dark world and in this present evil age, seeking to spread the light of the gospel and to fill the earth with the knowledge of God's glory as the waters cover the seas. And eventually, God is going to send His Son a second time and He will put an end to sin once and for all and deliver His people one final time from this fallen world. This is the last point. Consummation. In Isaiah 43, 14-21, God promises that He will overthrow the Babylonians and lead His people out of their exile. And in verses 16-19, to He says it's going to be like a new exodus. And what's the purpose of this new exodus? Verse 20. He says, the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. It all comes full circle. Even the animals in the desert are going to end up worshiping God. It's all going to get redeemed. New heavens and new earth. And the purpose is the praise of the Creator and Redeemer. The ultimate new exodus is the new heavens and new earth when the whole creation will be redeemed and will be the monument of His glory. Let me close by saying this. This is who you are, Christian. This alone is where you must always go to understand who you are. When you know the true God, when you truly see His glory, then you will understand who you are and what your purpose is and why your life matters. You must resolve to be a self-conscious Christian, first and foremost. You should find your identity in the cross of Christ and your purpose in the cause of Christ. Who are you, Christian? You are a creature made in the image of God to be a monument of His glory. Who are you, Christian? You are a fallen son or daughter of Adam, undeserving of the least mercy from God. 
Who are you, Christian? You are a follower of Jesus, chosen from the foundation of the world and redeemed from your sin, restored into a monument of His glory and a trophy of His grace. Do you matter, Christian? God so loved you that He gave His only Son to shed His blood in your place that you might be saved. Your life couldn't possibly matter more than that. Does your life have significance, Christian? Your significance is that you get to be a witness for Christ and to worship and glorify Him with your life wherever it is He's put you. What is your ultimate purpose, Christian? Your ultimate purpose, your chief end, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. In a new heavens and a new earth, when the church will reign with Christ forever and ever as the ultimate and eternal monument to God's everlasting glory. This is who you are. This is how we must live. And this is the message of tremendous hope and good news that we have to share with a lost world. It's the message of Isaiah 40 to 55. Behold your true God. Let's pray. Oh, living and true God, we give you thanks and praise today. And we thank you that you have revealed who you are to us so that we might know who we are. And you've told us what your purpose for us is, that in that we might find our purpose. I pray for any of us who are struggling with our own idols and our own identities and our own search for meaning and purpose and we, we, sometimes we talk about the grand scheme of things and some of us don't even know if there is a grand scheme. Help us to see what it is that we were made to be monuments of your glory, living images who worship and glorify and praise and serve you as your witnesses. Help us to see that we deserve nothing because of the fall into sin and because of how glorious you are. You're so far beyond us. What could we ever deserve from you but condemnation for our sin? And help us to remember that that equalizes all of us and cuts across every divide. And to remember the gospel, that at the foot of the cross, it's level ground for each and every one, no matter who they are or where they're from or what they look like. Help us to transcend the divides and divisions and bitterness that's all through our world today. To rise above it and be Christians first. Be Christians foremost. Think as Christians Filter everything through the gospel. Think theologically about everything. What God are we serving? Where are we finding our purpose and our identity? Help us to find it in you and to rest in you. And help us as a church to go forward with this message. To say to an idolatrous world, Behold the true God. Come and serve. Come and praise. Come and worship with us. From every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Come and be a monument of His glory. Oh, make us that kind of people and that kind of church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.